Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. There's some blue Bibles and some of the baskets in front of you. Feel free to take one of those and own it. If you don't have a Bible, please keep it and, and make it yours. Um, when things all, in the midst of everything that's been going on, you might be aware, even looking out this morning, it's Memorial Day weekend, uh, so of course there's plenty of people traveling and all over the country and, and over the world, in our case, actually. Um, but one thing that I want to mention, Memorial Day weekend, I think, is a very tricky weekend as far as people's lived experiences. For a lot of people, it's like they're not connected to um, the military. They don't know men and women who have died in combat, but there's a lot of people. This is a really, really... A painful weekend. Um, so th- th- a lot of times they'll experience this mixture of both gratitude uh, but also loss and mourning. And so I would encourage you in the midst of your relaxing and your celebrating uh, to think about are there people that I know in my relationship network that I should be reaching out to specifically and caring for and loving well. Um, and if you don't know, if you have no idea, if nothing comes into your mind, talk to me after the service. I can give you some ideas about how you can love our city and our county well um, this weekend. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, Though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. Let's pray together. Father, blessed be your name for giving us your true and authoritative word, as Paul kind of just alludes to here, for our building up. At the same time, we do need to be challenged by it, uh, sometimes warned, and there are some pretty significant warnings present in this passage that I pray that we would receive with humble hearts. Father, may your spirit work. We have no chance of benefiting from this time unless your spirit works in great power. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, man, based on the reading of that text, um, 
is it just me or is it a little bit, a little bit warm in here? You know, and the AC is working just fine. That's not it. I checked right before I came up here. So it's got to be the passage, and it's a passage that presents a rather sharp challenge to all of us and is borderline apocalyptic for introspective people. You know, I mean, you've got, you've got these phrases in here, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You know, Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. All of you, you know, anxiously self-reflective people are never going to sleep again upon hearing this, right? This is confirming all of your worst fears. You're still thinking about that time five years ago when you, you know, passed gas on a, on a date. But this stuff in chapter 13 is, is top shelf in comparison. I promise that we will talk later about anxiety pertaining to the certainty of our faith. That's an important subject. But for now, I want us to recognize the big picture that according to this passage, it's entirely possible to dabble with Christianity or affiliate with it in some way while in reality being outside the faith. That's alarming, isn't it? It's alarming individually, suggesting, for example, that a cruise control spiritual life is dangerous and possibly deceptive. You might be in the category of the lukewarm folks whom God says, you see this in Revelation chapter 3, that he will spit out of his mouth. And it's alarming corporately, suggesting that some folks who show up to Sunday morning services and know the lingo and play in the band, don't really know Jesus, which threatens the spiritual integrity of the church and it harms the public witness of the church. People who aren't really in the faith eventually end up acting like it, causing all sorts of damage to the body of Christ. At the very least, they adopt a very passive posture wrapped up in consuming, not serving, pursuing their own interests above the interests of other people. Sometimes they entertain false teaching or become false teachers themselves. Sometimes they become spiritually, physically, and emotionally abusive, essentially weaponizing the faith instead of submitting to it. And along with all of this damage that is caused internally, the world looks upon this kind of carnage and concludes, yeah, I'll pass on this Christianity thing. Thank you very much. If that's what it's going to be, I don't want any part of that. Major report came out this week, as I alluded to earlier, detailing widespread abuse and cover-up in a very large Christian denomination here in the United States. And I was devastated both for the victims, whose pain I cannot even fathom. I, mean, it's, it's, you can, I could barely make it through the report. And I was also devastated concerning the destruction that this does to the witness of the church of Jesus Christ in a world that desperately needs Jesus. So even though this is a very uncomfortable passage, we see the urgency of rooting out disingenuous Christianity for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of the body of Christ and for the sake of those who don't know Christ but are watching our conduct and spiritually searching. So two exhortations that will frame our time together this morning. Number one, check yourself. And then number two, 
be restored. So we got to check ourselves. And number two, though, there are opportunities aplenty by God's grace for restoration. So let's get started with that first exhortation. Hey, we got to check ourselves as the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul, who is the author of this letter, has just spent the better part of three chapters, chapters 10 through 12, responding to criticism from opponents in Corinth concerning his ministry and his message. And Paul was responding not, and this is very important, he was not responding for the sake of defending his personal status, defending his reputation. He was responding for the sake of protecting the Corinthians from being led astray by these opponents. Paul sarcastically called them super apostles, which is kind of great in my mind. He's trying to keep the Corinthians from being led astray to a different as in a false Jesus and to a different as in a false gospel. That's why he's responding. And the warning uh, was basically that these super apostles are, are infiltrating this church and they are leading you away from the true faith. Now in chapter 13... Paul is starting to play some serious offense along with his defense. He's becoming very well-rounded athletically here. More specifically, he's warning a very broad group of people, which, judging from the context, likely included his opponents, his al their allies, so his opponents, the allies of his opponents, and the folks who had, had lapsed into the contentiousness and the sexual immorality that Paul mentions at the end of chapter 12. He's, he's warning all of those people. And the warning was this, Corinthians, consequences are imminent unless you demonstrate spiritual fruit in keeping with sincere repentance. So, hey opponents, hey allies of my opponents, hey people who have lapse into contentiousness and sexual immorality. Consequences are very imminent unless there's repentance and fruit that demonstrates that you have sincerely repented. You can see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13 that Paul had already given them warnings when he made his very painful second visit. So upon his forthcoming third visit that he was preparing for, no more warnings. This is it. Warnings are over, now it's just consequences. If charges against opponents, against Paul's opponents, or charges against the allies of these opponents, or unrepentantly immoral people could be established on the basis of two or three witnesses, as you see in verse 1, Paul is going to take action and would not spare them. Verse 2. And you can see verses... 3 and 5, the, the kind of action that Paul was planning to take would, and I think this is humorous if we're making an allowance for some dark humor here, it would demonstrate the kind of spiritual power that Paul's detractors had been accusing him of not having. You know how you've been disappointed with the presentation of my ministry and and cast me aside for being weak? You know how you've been making that charge? Well, let's just say that you're about to get that, that very powerful stuff you've been hoping for when God deals with you through us. Jesus' apparent 
weakness and coming to this earth and being crucified, verse 4 ended up being a launch pad for displaying God's power as he was raised into resurrection life. Similarly, Corinthians, my earthly weaknesses as an apostle will be a platform for God's power when I make my third visit since I share in Christ's resurrection life and therefore God's power. It makes me think of Paul's exhortation in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you put that Holy Spirit given life and power together with Paul's uniquely authoritative apostolic calling. And you can see why some supernaturally powerful stuff was, if necessary, about to go down upon Paul's third visit to Corinth. Now we might welcome the news of this pending power encounter. You know, like, Jesus, go, go get him, Paul. I mean, it's, it's exhausting. He's been criticized throughout this letter. He's been responding. It's like, yes, set up some, like, a, let's just get out on the streets and hash this out. We might act like that. But Paul, being a shepherd at heart and not at all a vindictive troll, was after heart change, not consequences. Thus the the final warning in verse 5, a plea that's, that's brimming with pastoral energy and emotion. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So you see that Paul is like the anti-Jonah. He's the anti-Jonah. God famously told the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim God's judgment concerning their very grievous sin. And when they actually repented and God responded with compassion, Jonah got angry because he was actually hoping to see some consequences. In fact, he was sitting outside the city looking for the boom. He was waiting for it. He was like, God's judgment is upon you. Sees a compassion. He gets upset because he was hoping to see the fireworks. That was Jonah's disposition. Paul, though, having a heart transformed by the Spirit's power at work in him, loved the Corinthians and desperately longed for repentance. Thus the warning in verse 5 and, and the remarkable patience he's been demonstrating given the strength and the obstinance and even just how, how personal the opposition has been. But why not show even more patience, right? He showed a lot of patience. You can see his pastoral heart, but he is drawing a line in the sand. He said, if there isn't repentance now, when I, when I come there, consequences. So why not show even more patience? Why draw this particular line in the sand? We don't get specific whys in this text, but Paul's game plan here clearly wasn't arbitrary. It was spiritually discerned as Paul walked with God by the power of the Spirit. Plus, there's some pastoral artistry involved with these kinds of matters that, in Paul's case, was informed by the amount of time he'd spent watching their lives. Relationships were key. And at some point, those kinds of inputs 
give you enough information to realize, okay, these folks just aren't walking with Jesus despite honest warnings. They're being disingenuous. Which means that unless there are significant earthly consequences that hopefully catalyze remorseful repentance, they may well be facing eternal consequences. And even if those earthly consequences don't catalyze individual change, and they don't always catalyze that kind of change, there's still a very powerful signal to the body of Christ that the individuals in question are in serious spiritual trouble, which might prevent other people from going down the same path. Spiritual rot in individuals, if it's left unaddressed, eventually starts to envelop entire church communities like a neglected infection that begins in a paper cut and gradually spreads throughout the entire body. Which means that you, you can't say that you love your church family and then let this kind of stuff fester. Which means that you can't say that you love those who don't know Christ and let this fester because rotten the church affects the witness of the church and it undermines our calling to love our community spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Which means that hard and awkward conversations are sometimes necessary for the sake of loving the rest of the body, and frankly, for the sake of loving the world. This gets, this gets serious in a hurry, doesn't it? You don't deal with the rot, it affects the whole body, and it affects the witness of the church. And it affects those who are searching for Jesus. For these same reasons, I want to pass along the exhortation that Paul gave to the Corinthians. Church, let's examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Let's test ourselves. There's some subjectivity involved with this examination, but but Scripture does spell out some guidelines. Galatians chapter 5, genuine spirit-filled believers will be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. My goodness, that's something these days. And self-control. They won't be perfect, but, but by and large, you'll see this kind of fruit in their lives. Romans chapter 12, genuine spirit-filled believers will abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. They will love one another with brotherly affection. They will outdo one another in showing honor. They'll not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. They'll rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. They'll contribute to the needs of the saints. They'll seek to show hospitality. These are the spirit-given marks of genuine Christians. And notice a major theme in these lists. Did you, did you catch this? Genuine believers, you can know them because they prioritize the well-being of others beyond their own, often at very great cost to themselves. Do you get this theme? Do you see this theme? And wouldn't you know it, that's precisely what Jesus did for us. It turns out when you know the Savior, you end up acting like him. All of this might sound really lofty. I mean, those are some lofty lists. In Galatians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 12. But you'll be encouraged to know that this is the miraculous kind of stuff that the Spirit does 
when he takes up residence in those who repent of their sin and put their hope in Jesus. Here's a word of encouragement. This is not elite Christian living. This is normal Christian living made possible by the supernatural spirit who lives in normal people like you and me. That should encourage you greatly. This isn't out of reach because when you put your faith in the Lord, you get a supernatural spirit. Normal people can do these kinds of things by the power of God. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, does your life look anything like this? Does your life look anything like this? And please ask your friends for input. Involve your spiritual community in this testing because we all have blind spots, and the thing about blind spots is that we can't see them. <laughs> we need people to come to us and speak to us honestly with love. And oh, by the way, the humility necessary to ask for that kind of input, for that kind of help, is itself a sign that you're in the faith. Earlier I promised a word to anxiously introspective people. You know, the folks who are professional self-critics about the state of their faith. And here it is. I've tried to think about this as carefully as possible because this is a major pastoral issue. To those who are anxiously self-reflective and introspective and are always wondering about the state of their faith, here's what I want you to know. Jesus knows about your type. And he actually deals with this kind of thing very compassionately in Scripture. And in doing so, suggests that the spiritual anxiety itself is an encouraging sign of spiritual life. In Jesus' day, if you are struggling with physical ailments, contemporary religious thought suggested a connection between your physical issues in your sin. Can you imagine that? So basically, if you had physical ailments, the, kind of the common thinking was there must be some very serious sin issue going on in your life. And so if you had a physical problem, it kind of put your spiritual status before God in doubt. So when people came to Jesus, understand this, for healing, for physical healing, it's important to understand that they are always suffering both physically and spiritually, desperately looking to Jesus for relief on both fronts. And what did Jesus often say to such people when he healed them? I can think of at least three occasions. Your faith has made you well. Isn't that remarkable? You see what Jesus is doing. In other words, Jesus didn't just heal them physically. He, he spoke to their spiritual anxiety by commending the genuineness of their faith as demonstrated in their humble, dependent posture before the Lord. And Jesus's parable in Luke 18 makes a very similar kind of point, commending the faith of the tax collector who humbled himself before the Lord, beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the parable simultaneously challenges the spiritual estate of the religious leader who trusted in himself that he was righteous and treated others with contempt. You see what's happening here? Spiritually anxious people who are uncertain about themselves and desperately looking to Jesus for help are, generally speaking, in a very encouraging spot when it comes to their faith, whereas the self-assured folks who trust in themselves have this sort of holier-than-thou posture 
who treat others with spiritual condescension and often stir up dissension in the body of Christ, they're the ones who should be concerned. And keep in mind that this self-assured posture, here's the thing about it, that self-assured posture might lurk just beneath the surface of your seemingly impressive facade where other people can't see it. Sometimes, arrogantly self-assured people even get complimented by others for appearing to be humble and vulnerable. In fact, spiritually manipulative, abusive people tend to be experts at cultivating precisely this set of circumstances, arrogance masquerading as vulnerability and humility. Now we've turned the tables a little bit, haven't we? We're comforting the anxious, those who could never seem to find spiritual rest in Jesus, even though they desperately want it. And we're challenging the self-assured, not to make them anxious, per se, but to see if they might be trusting in themselves instead of trusting in Jesus. Self-assuredness, by the way, was certainly a problem, big time in Corinth, which was the metropolitan capital city of Achaia, which was part of the Roman Empire, which valued personal strength and honor, and power. People were walking around all over the place, even the body of Christ, feeling awfully self-assured. Self-assuredness is notoriously hard to point out since folks who struggle with it are, well, self-assured. So I want to mention three subtle signs of self-assuredness to kind of get us thinking together this morning. Three subtle signs of self-assuredness. Number one would be prayerlessness. Honest talk here. Prayerlessness is not mainly a function of busyness. It's a function of pride and self-assuredness. Jackie Hill Perry put it like this just this past week. She said, prayerlessness is almost always a humility issue. We'd like to believe that we don't pray because of busyness or because we just lack discipline and, and need to do better. At the end of the day, though, we're just a bunch of proud people. Pride deludes us into thinking we're self-sufficient. But in fact, everything you have is because God reigns on the just and the unjust. Subtle sign number two of, of being self-assured. Easily taking offense. Easily taking offense. Unless we've experienced miraculous heart change by the power of the Spirit, our, our number one fear, generally speaking, for most people, will involve harm being done to our reputations since our feelings of self-assuredness will depend in large part about what other people think about us, what their opinions of us are. So the question that I would put to you this morning is, how do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to slights, both externally and internally? Subtle sign number three. Subtle sign number three of self-assuredness. You're, you're unmoved by news of conversion or spiritual renewal. You hear about it if you're being honest with yourself, it doesn't do a thing for you. Self-assured people who are self-interested and perhaps even outside the faith are unmoved by conversions, news of conversions, because they don't care that much about other people and they fail to understand the depths of their own need for God's grace. Maybe they heeded an altar call 20 years ago, but they they don't have a very honest view 
of their own sin and therefore have a ho-hum view of God's grace and his miraculous restorative work in the lives of sinful people. And in the worst cases, they respond more like Jonah than Paul when they hear of God's mercy in the lives of others, especially those they believe they've been wronged by. Does your heart leap when you hear testimonies about God's grace? Does your heart leap when you hear news of, of baptism, of God accomplishing miraculous spiritual renewal? What do these subtle signs say about the state of our souls? What do they say about our experience or not of God's redeeming grace? And, and please ask other people for input. Hash this out with folks who can speak truthfully to you. Now, when we, when we check ourselves like this, we just might not like everything that we see, which means some repentance is in order, and in some cases it might mean actually giving our lives to Jesus if we determine that all along we've been outside the faith. And if some repentance and belief is in order, I have some really good news. Every single one of you can be restored. So check yourself, but then, second exhortation, much more briefly, be restored. Go back to verse 5, and this time we're going to read through verse 10. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. You see this. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul's gracious pastoral heart for these Corinthians continues to astound, especially when we remember that at least some of the people that he's writing to here were adversarial. I mean, look at verse 7. We pray to God that you may not do wrong, but that you may do what is right. In other words, change the rebellious and sinful ways. Verse 9. In fact, we will joyfully be weak for the sake of your spiritual strengthening. Verse 9 again. Your restoration is what we pray for. There is some, some wryness that's baked into Paul's comments as well, especially in verse 6, suggesting that if these folks do repent and get to a right place spiritually, they're going to find out that Paul and his companions have been passing the spiritual test all along despite the weakness for which they've been criticized. But the overall posture here from Paul is remarkable, especially given our decidedly ungracious age in which we're given to a lot of vindictiveness, and we seem to revel in the misfortune of other people. A few weeks ago, Jonathan Haidt, a social, a social psychologist at NYU, wrote an article in The Atlantic that mentions, among other things, how social media has basically given us all dart guns, and now we're walking around darting each other or trying to avoid getting darted on social media. That's our moment. 
and it's depressing, and it's straight up not working. As Hype puts it in the same article, social media has eroded the mortar of our society. So Paul's mindset here, not only is it stunning, it's so refreshing, and it's distinctively Christian because those who have experienced the restorative grace of God in Christ are changed in such a way that they want other people to experience the same thing. Which leads me to believe that the darting is going to continue unless we experience spiritual renewal here in the West and unless genuine Christians commit to living counterculturally, refusing to carry around the dark guns and refusing to associate with people who do. And I just, I wonder if that spiritual renewal might start with all of us this morning, with those of us who are gathered in this room. It certainly could. Every one of us, upon reviewing Romans 12 and upon reviewing Galatians chapter 5, even faithful followers of Jesus have something they need to deal with in their hearts. And some of us might look at those lists and consider the fact that they may not have been walking with Jesus at all. Regardless of what might describe you, every single one of us has something to own, something to repent of. So spiritual renewal could start right here in this room. If you are languishing in your faith, perhaps you are caught in the fog of spiritual depression that just does not seem to lift. Is this the very hour in which God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, might begin to restore your zeal? If you're caught in some persistent sin patterns, maybe the contentiousness or the the sexual immorality that the Corinthians wrestled with and Paul mentions at the end of chapter 12, is this the very hour in which God might begin to free you from those chains and restore the joy of your salvation? If you've been associating yourself with the church or with Christianity but never truly repented of your sin and put your hope in Christ, is this the very hour in which God might make you into a new creation in Christ, beginning a good work in you that he will be bring to completion when Christ returns? This is my heart for our church family. This is why I show up on Sunday morning not mainly to call things out, but mainly so that all of us might experience restoration and renewal in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that's God's heart for you as well. Just as Paul warned the Corinthians of of pending judgment, but zealously desired the restoration, God warns us of judgment for unrepentance and unbelief, but desires, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that all people might be saved and come to the knowledge of, of the truth. Or as God puts it in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Stop drinking from cisterns that don't hold water and drink from the streams of everlasting life. So my exhortation to you is, as we end, commune with the Lord today. Even if you feel the fog is too thick, do it anyway. Cry out to the Lord in repentance, even if you feel like your sin is too much. And here's another word for the anxious people. The folks who return to Christ but feel that they would never do so perfectly. You're right about that. But here's the thing. Your salvation is not ultimately based on the strength of your grasp on Jesus, but on the strength of the Savior's grasp on you. So cry out to him, regardless of the fog. Commune with him and be renewed, be restored. 
Amen.